Our sermon this morning is on the Tower of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. Turn there in your Bible if you brought it. Open it on your, your smartphone. Um, look up here on the screen, whatever is most, most convenient for, for you. Uh, the Tower of Babel is a, a story, it's a text that helps us understand and make, make sense of uh, so much of what we see in the world today. Why are there so many languages? Why are there so many cultures? Why are there so many... Uh, you know, people, groups, and, and nations, right? If you, if you, like, go to different countries in the world, there's not lines on the ground demarcating one country to the next. And so we have to kind of understand why, you know, there's one plot of land and there's kind of this arbitrary line in between it. And on one side, uh, people speak a different language here than there, or their culture is different from here uh, to there. Kind of raises the question, why doesn't all of humanity speak the same language, have the same uh, culture, right? Like if, a, if an alien ship were to come to Earth, they'd be like, you guys are all the same species. Why are you, you know, you're all homo sapiens. So why are you not, why, why don't you guys all speak the same language? Why don't you all have the same, uh, you know, culture? Why, are you got, why aren't you more united together? Why aren't you more aligned together? Why don't you communicate together more, uh, more effectively? Why is everyone kind of siloed off into little, uh, segments and people groups. Why is it? Why is it like that? And the, the story of the Tower of Babel kind of gives us some insight into why that is. Why that's the case. It's a fairly short passage, so we're just going to read it, verses one through nine, uh, in one fell swoop, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pray, and we will get to work just considering what this text means and how we might uh, apply it to our lives. It reads: Now the whole earth had one language, and they had the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us, ourselves, let us build ourselves a city with a tower uh, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, so the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes. We pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the glory of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to see and realize how it applies to our lives. We pray that we could go out from here uh, prepared to live in light of it for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, 
Now, before we look specifically at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we just need to quickly revisit the context uh, from Genesis 4 up until now because what we're going to see is that it's all kind of one big connected story or more rather, it's all one big genealogy um, that that kind of, uh, it's like it just kind of sets, it it kind of rests on particular generations and particular stories. so Genesis 1 through 3, creation, humanity, Adam and Eve, the story is zoomed in there. For three whole chapters, we see just those kind of primary characters of Adam uh, and Eve. Starting in Genesis 4 through 5, it hits fast forward, and there's this progression of generations. And you kind of you know, zip through them really quickly. You don't know anything about any of their lives other than just their name, uh, you know, and the father and the son, one generation to the next, Adam through Seth down to Noah. And then in Genesis 6, it's like fast forward is stopped and it just goes to slow motion. And we see from Genesis 6 through 9, it's kind of a zoomed in, slow motion, detailed account of Noah, similar to what we saw with Adam and Eve in 1 through through 3. So the ark and the flood and the Noahic covenant. In Genesis 10, it picks back up into kind of fast forward like it was in, in chapters 4 and 5 and zips through a bunch more descendants. Uh, through Shem and Ham and Japheth, down several lines through each of their family trees. Um, and then after the Tower of Babel, in the latter half of Genesis chapter 11, it kind of shows that same segment of human history, but it zooms in specifically on uh, the one son of Noah, of, of Shem. So basically, from, the, from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Genesis 11 is basically one big genealogy that kind of takes these pauses and these breaks and these little blips on the, on the story to zoom in on Adam and Noah specifically. And then later uh, we're going to you know, dive in for chapters on end on Abraham and, and his sons. So one continuous genealogy that, that kind of isolates and emphasizes and kind of revolves around the garden and then the flood and then the tower of, of Babel. Now... What we're going to see at the end of uh, Genesis 10, right before the Tower of Babel, um, it, so, so when you look at Genesis 10 and, chapter, Genesis 10 and 11, you see that uh, 11 probably did not take place chronologically after chapter 10, because chapter 10 makes several references to different languages. Verse 5 says, from these coastland peoples, they spread into their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. Same thing in, chapter, in verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans and their languages and their lands and their nations. Same thing in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans and languages and their, their lands and their, their nations. So by the end of chapter 10, uh, we're several generations away from Noah, and hum- humanity's population is growing significantly, even exponentially, spreading across the earth. People are already speaking different languages. And so the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, uh, it seems to, to give some insight into how we got there. Right, or kind of answer the question. Like, if you read through Genesis chapter 10 and you think, oh my goodness, how do we get from one guy, Adam, to now everyone's all over the place and they're all speaking different languages, how do we get there? Genesis chapter 11 kind of reverts back and kind of answers that question retroactively through the Tower of, of Babel. Now, a lot of people think that uh, you can actually kind of pin the, the timeline of the Tower of Babel specifically within uh, Genesis chapter 10 by looking at a guy named uh, Nimrod. Uh, and he's in chapter 10, verse 9, if you want to look there for, for homework later. But it says Nimrod was a, a mighty hunter. He was literally, it says he was the first person on earth to be a mighty man. So Nimrod was this, you know, was this powerful king, almost this kind of, uh, you know, 
a, a pirate figure that, that, you know, he would kind of go around and beat people up and kind of conquer people, groups, and villages. He would dominate them. He amassed this big army, built this big kingdom, and he called the kingdom uh, Babel. It also says in Genesis 10 that he would later go from there to, uh, into Assyria. He would found the city of Nineveh. Uh, so we're familiar with Assyria because they're constant enemies of and, and besieging and attacking uh, Israel. And Nineveh is the, you know, we recognize that from the story of Jonah. They are kind of uh, some, some enemies of God's people as well. So Nimrod, not the greatest name, but Nimrod uh, was a bad guy. He was a violent guy. Uh, and he founded entire civilizations that were notoriously brutal and, and violent. And that's kind of the, the origins of, of Babel, at least presumably that's the origins of Babel here from Nimrod in Genesis 10. Now, Genesis 11 uh, kind of looks at that, that mention of Babel in Genesis 10 and, gives, and just zooms in and gives us some additional insight, kind of like how Genesis 2, in, in Genesis 1, we see a mention of, of God creating humanity, creating Adam and Eve, or creating male and female in his image, and then Genesis 2 zooms in on that and shows us more details on exactly how it, how it took place. Uh, that's how uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, kind of looks at that verse from Genesis 10. It says, now the whole earth had one language, and they had the same words. So prior to the city of Babel, the Tower of Babel, everyone speaks the same. They're, they're advancing technologically. Uh, there, there are opportunities, you know, humanity can effectively pool its resources together, pool their, their knowledge together, and then, and then advance uh, significantly and, and advance quickly um, in terms of technology, you know, it, because everyone can kind of fill in the knowledge gaps and the competency gaps and the, the ability gaps from everyone. You know, if you have a if you have a smart guy who can who can you know strategize and and build machines and build weapons, but he gets beat up every time he tries to fight anyone. And then you have a tough guy who can beat anyone up, but all he can do is just fight with his bare hands. Then the two of, like, if, they, if you put them together, then it's a formidable combo because you can have, you know, one guy who can kind of strategize and plan, the other guy who can implement and, and execute. That's kind of what's going on. Everyone's all together. Everyone is kind of filling in everyone's knowledge gaps. They're speaking the same language. They're communicating together. Everything's firing on all cylinders. Humanity is working toward a common cause, which seems on its surface like a good thing, right? It seems like, you know, can't we all, like, it's like the hippie dream, right, from the 60s. Can't we all just get along? Can't we love one another? can we all just, you know, hang out and be together, which seems good on the surface? And so you have to account for this variable of sin and our sinful nature and our rebellion uh, against God. Verse 2, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So when God kicked humanity uh, out of the Garden of Eden, uh, specifically it says that it kind of put them, he kicked them out to the east and he put a cherubim that was guarding the eastern entrance to the Garden uh, of Eden. And so presumably they started there east of Eden and then they've just been migrating around and wandering from there, from the east. And now they, they come to uh, what is known as the, the land of Shinar. Scholars uh, tend to think that it's the southern region of Mesopotamia which would be east of the nation of Israel and um, in like modern day Iraq. Uh, so that's kind of where we've kind of located the story, at least as best as we can tell. Verse three, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And they had brick for stone and bitumen for, for mortar. So there's no stones naturally occurring in that geographic area, so they make their own bricks. And again, technologically, they're, they're, they've determined that, you know, if we kind of take clay and, and kind of fashion them and let's let the sun kind of dry it out, then that makes it uh, reasonably strong. But if we actually bake it with fire, then it will make it even stronger and we can make, you know, a tower that's even better. Verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves uh, a city. Right? We want to gather together. We want, to, we want buildings and homes and businesses and, and recreation and safety. We want walls around us. We, we want a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. So in the middle of our city, we want a big, huge centerpiece that goes up as far as you can see. It goes up into the sky, into the, into the clouds. We want it to be the tallest, most impressive structure anyone has ever seen. A lot of scholars think that this was... Um, What's known as a ziggurat, which you can just Google, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. It's just a massive structure that was common in the ancient Near East. Uh, a lot of civilizations, when we look at their archaeological remains, we see that that was kind of something that they fashioned in the center of their, you know, uh, like people group in the center of their civilization. It'd be a big, tall building. A lot of them were pagans and polytheists, and so they didn't believe in God. They, they kind of made up their own gods and worshipped them, and uh, the, the people, more often than not, believed that their gods lived in the top of these uh, ziggurats. They, they, the ziggurat, like tower, structure, building thing, almost functioned like an intersection between heaven, where the, where the gods kind of were and, and you know, lived and and earth and so the gods kind of lived in the ziggurat which was kind of this like touch point between heaven and earth they'd have priests that were you know they, they were the only ones that were allowed to go into the ziggurats it was their responsibility to care for the gods and to attend to the needs of the gods and to come back to the people and tell them what the gods wanted from them cities were built around these things they were kind of designed to pay homage to the gods so that the gods would look favorably on them Give them healthy children, give them rain for plentiful harvests, these kinds of, kinds of things. So, the Tower of Babel is essentially humanity saying that, that same kind of thing. We, we want to build a, a big tower, taller than anything that's ever existed. We want it to go up to the heavens. We want, you know, we want to be with the gods. We want to be able to travel up this tower and to kind of live like the gods. We want to make our way all the way to God, all by ourselves, all, all on our own, all based on what we have done. We are self-determining. We want to define our own reality, our morality, our destiny apart from God. There's, there's nothing that, that is too difficult for us. We can go anywhere. We can do anything. Right? Look how powerful we are. We are uh, basically like gods. It's kind of the, the attitude and the, the sentiment that we see. It's, it's almost like Adam and Eve's uh, individual sin has kind of grown to become the collective sin of an entire uh, society. That's kind of what, what the Tower of Babel is meant to kind of uh, be reminiscent of, is this kind of pride. I don't need God. I don't want to follow God's rules. I want to make my own rules. I want to do my own thing. That happens in Adam and Eve, and it grows out into a societal uh, sin here with, with the Tower of Babel. And it's, and it's highly offensive to God, because God... God is the one who actually does dwell in heaven, right? God doesn't need to build a tower up to heaven. He dwells there. God is the one who's sovereign over everything. And here are these creatures, these small, tiny, puny creatures presuming to be on par with him or presuming to be, to be equal with him. So I'm going to make a tower to the heavens. 
and let us make a name for ourselves. So now we kind of see some insight into to why humanity wants to make this tower as big as it is. We, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want, we want to be made much of. We want people to remember us. We want people to think highly of us. We want people to think how awesome we are. We want, we want to be famous. We want to be magnified. We want to be glorified. We want our name to be, to be great. God created people to live for God's glory. God created people so that they would make His name famous. And they're saying, we don't want to make God's name famous. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to establish a reputation for ourselves. We want everyone to know and appreciate and hear about and marvel at how great we are, not how great God is. We want to make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So one, one motivation is, is, kinda, is positive. We want to make a name for ourselves. One motivation is negative. We don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And both of those fly in the face of God's design for humanity. God says, I want you to make my name famous, make my name glorious. They say, we want to make our name famous and glorious. God says, I want you to, to go. And, and they say, no, we don't want to go. We want to stay. When God created Adam... He says, I want you to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam, I want you to scatter. I want you to disperse. You're in the garden where I dwell. I want you to uh, work the land and cultivate it and expand the borders of the garden right until it fills the whole earth. Cultivate, create, bring order out of chaos. And as you do, reproduce so that there are more of you, more of my image bearers who can join you in creating and working and tending and cultivating. That's God's call to humanity from the moment that he created them. That's, their, that's the whole reason why they exist, is to, is to cultivate and, and expand the, the borders of this garden where God dwells and cultivate it, create it, and then, and then you know, fill it with more image bearers. Of course, Adam fails. He's kicked out of the garden. Uh, and, and then there's his son, Cain, who kills his brother. God sentences, God sentences Cain to a life of exile, a life of wandering around. And what does Cain do? Promptly in chapter 4, it says Cain built a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So God says to Adam, uh, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. Adam fails. God says to Cain, I want you, because of your sin, you're going to wander around. You're going to live in exile. And Cain says, I'm not wandering anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to plant right here, build a city, and I'm going to name it after my son. I'm going to make a, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a city and make a name for Cain and Enoch because we want our name to be planted, fixed forever in human history. We want to be famous. We want everyone to think of how great we are. Cain committed the, the same sin that we see at the Tower uh, of Babel. Right? I'm not going to wander. I'm not going to roam. I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to hunker down. I'm never going to leave this plot of ground for the rest of my life. And here's Nimrod doing the same thing. Right? God, God has called him to, to scatter, fill the earth, make God's name great, love other people, tell other people about God's glory and God's fame. And he says, nope, we're going to stay, we're going to plant, we're going to hunker down, we're going to build walls, we're going to keep everyone else out, we're going to stay inside so we don't have to interact with them, we're, we're not going to be exposed, we're not going to be uncomfortable, we're not going to have to compromise our preferences, we're going to get exactly what we want right here in this little city that we have built. It'll be safe, it'll be comfortable, it'll be familiar, it'll be just the way that we like it. 
which is the opposite, that the, the whole thrust of the Bible, start to finish, is the opposite of that, right? God says to, to Abraham, go from your country, right, uh, and from your kindred, go from your father's house into the land that I will show you. And when you do, when you leave your, your home, Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless all of the families of the earth through your family. That's what we're going to see next week with the Abrahamic covenant. So it's the opposite of Babel, right? Don't stay, go. Don't make your name great. I will make your name great. And wherever you go, be a blessing. Leave it better than you found it. Look at King David, right? Second Samuel chapter, chapter 7. I took you from the pasture. I took you from following the sheep. I took you and made you a prince over my people in Israel. I will make your name great. I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Same thing. Go. Leave home. Create. Cultivate. Go out. Right? right? Don't make your own name great. That's blasphemy and idolatry. I will make your name great because I am good and kind and I will provide a Savior, a Messiah. New Testament, Jesus speaking to the church, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? Go out into the world Go make my name famous. Go tell people about how great I am. Go disciple them. Go teach them how to follow me and walk with me. God's will for humanity is, is outward. It's going out, spreading, dispersing, scattering. Be a blessing. Go, you know, go into your neighborhoods. Meet your neighbors. Build relationships. Get to know them. Find out how you can be a blessing to them and then do it, even if it's costly. Go... Go into your workplaces, work hard, do good work, be winsome, have a good reputation, make it so that people want to be around you, live, live a life that's, that's compelling, right? Earn the right to be heard and then tell people about the God that you worship and that you serve. Go into your families, love your spouse, shepherd your children, disciple them, teach them about Christ, teach them to, to trust in him and obey him and walk with him. When they become adults, send them out in the world so that they can repeat the process. Go into the culture and influence it for Jesus. Go create something. Go encourage someone. Go run for office, right? right? Go, go scatter, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make my name famous, make my name great, and love and serve your neighbor. The people of Babel say, forget all that. We want to stay. We don't want to go. We don't want to be directed outward. We want to be curved inward. There's a lot of Christians today who have that same kind of Tower of Babel-like mindset that says, I don't want to go. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to uh, live for the glory and the fame of God instead of my own. I don't want to love my neighbor instead of, you know, looking inward and looking at myself and, right, and my preferences. We want to withdraw. We want to build our own little thing. We don't want to let anyone in. It's us versus them. It's culture wars. They're the, we're the good guys. They're the, the bad guys. We don't want to meet them. We don't want to listen to them. We don't want to engage in them. We want to protect ourselves from them. We, we only win if they lose, right? Instead of going, loving, encouraging, making disciples, we're staying, resenting, slandering, lobbing grenades over the, the wall at them. I don't want to go. I want to stay. I don't want to love my neighbor. I want to be comfortable, I don't want to build a relationship. I want to win. 
I don't want to make God's name great. I want to make my own name great. The, 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 the sin that we see at the Tower of Babel is the sin of pride and selfishness and, and, and re- rebellion. Here's how God responds in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So humanity has, has amassed this great structure that's the product of the greatest minds that everyone on earth can, can you know, all come together and make. They're collaborating. They're pushing the boundaries of what they're, they're capable of. They're, it's bigger and faster and, and better than ever before. They're terribly proud of themselves. They stand at the base of this tower. They look up. They can't even see the, the top of it because it's in the sky, in the clouds. They're in awe of it. They are impressed with themselves. They have a big you know, ribbon-cutting ceremony. They're, they're confident that everyone is always going to remember them for all of human history. This is the biggest thing that's ever existed. And, and, and in order for God to even see it, God has to come down from where he is to, to see it. Right? God has to stoop low to, to even see the Tower of Babel. He needs a magnifying glass. He needs a He needs a microscope to see, like, this thing that humanity thinks is so huge and so big and so massive, God is, like, looking down at it and can barely see it. That's how big God is. That's how great and glorious and transcendent God is, that the biggest and most impressive of human accomplishments is barely a blip on his his radar. Right, we like to, we, we tend to see ourselves as, as impressive, look how smart I am, look how successful I am, look how influential I am. Made a lot of money, got a big house, got a fast car, got a lot of toys, a lot of resources. People are impressed with me. I'm, I'm righteous, I'm moral, I'm spiritual. Look at me, look how great I am. And God is not impressed with any of it. He barely, it barely even registers with God. He barely even, he has to stoop down low to see any of our impressive accomplishments that, you know, it's like a, it's like a kid who does his first chore, gets a dollar for allowance, goes and buys a, whatever, a matchbox car, and then, and then takes it to Bill Gates. And says, look how, look at all, look at everything I have. Look at all this money I have. Look at all these, these this stuff that I have. And he's thinking, you know, I have, my net worth is more than the GDP of most countries. Like, I, you know, I'm not impressed with what little bit that you, that you have, right? To, to, be, to be overly impressed with yourself, to think that you're awesome, and to think that God is impressed with you is quite possibly the silliest, stupidest thing that any, that any created being could ever, could ever think. Verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. So, so God's not impressed. God's bigger. God is sovereign. God is higher. God has to come down to see this, this thing that they've built. But God does acknowledge, right? You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not impressed. I'm not like, you know, intimidated by humanity. But they are scrappy, right? They, they, they're like Rudy 
at, at Notre Dame, right? They're, they're persistent, they're tenacious, they won't quit, and they, do, you know, if, if we're not careful, the, these guys have a pretty, for creatures, they have a high capacity. They've built this tower. If we let them run unchecked, they'll build bigger things. It'll be, it'll be you know, it'll, it'll just escalate more and more. And so there's a sense in which God is saying in the Tower of Babel, like, humanity is a lot more industrious and a lot more capable than maybe I uh, would initially give them credit for. Which, like, we read that and we're like, yeah, look, see, that's, that's good, right? That, that's because we're smart. That's because we're, you know, in, intuitive. It's because we are industrious, right? We built the internet. We flew to the moon. We can do, we can do anything. But God is not saying these people are super intelligent, super capable, and a very high capacity to do good. He's saying they have, have a high capacity to do evil, right? If you get these people together, they, they, this is only the beginning of the pride and the disobedience and the rebellion that they intend to and will in fact uh, achieve. Nothing evil, nothing bad, nothing unrighteous, nothing that's harmful that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God acknowledges that, that human beings can achieve some things that are, relatively speaking, uh, impressive. They're just impressively bad. <laughs> They're just impressively evil. They're impressively uh, wicked. And so to prevent and, and thwart, right? God's saying, you know, more ingenuity and more innovation is not always, always good. Sometimes people can come together and achieve things that are tactically difficult and therefore impressive, but nonetheless bad and immoral. Right? They can split an atom, but then use it to build a nuclear warhead. There's like... It's like this is the center of like what's like technology and media companies now is this idea of like you know the greatest goal for our company is engagement. We want more viewers, more people, more users, more accounts. We want them to use our apps more, watch our channels more, click our links more, interact with us more users, more engagement, more traffic, more ads, more money. People are more connected. Everybody wins. What could possibly be be wrong with that? But the unintended consequence that has come to the, to the forefront of our, you know, understanding in the last few years is that, you know, so they'll, they'll build these systems and they want more people to engage, so they create algorithms to figure out who you are, figure out what kinds of things you click on, figure out what kinds of things you're likely to click on, what kinds of articles you're likely to read, what kinds of videos you're likely to watch. They deliver them to you through news feeds and notifications with the goal of maximizing engagement, maximizing how many people are using their service and how much they are using it. And then we're constantly bombarded with, with things that, that they have determined that they think we are likely to want to see. And they'll say, in order to, to get Ben or whoever to, to engage most, let's get, let's get rid of all of the things that they don't want to see, and let's, let's kind of bombard him with all the things that we think that he does want to see, and we become increasingly siloed off into these echo chambers where the only things that we see are people that agree with us, right? And we don't see anything that people disagree with us, and so we're all inhabiting different worlds, where we all, you know... Uh, you know, our only sources of information are things that affirm and reinforce what we already think. So you, you go online or you turn on the TV and it's just a constant, you know, chorus of, yeah, you're right, 
what you think is right, what they think is, is wrong. Don't listen to them. Don't learn from them. Right? They're bad. They're communists. They're racist. They're fascists. They're, tr- they're the enemy trying to destroy everything. And then the only exposure that we have to people that disagree with us is when people that agree with us tell us how bad the people that we disagree with are. And so then we all just, that's all, our, that's all we get. We're overfed with that. We become more agitated and more disgruntled and more frustrated. And we feel more and more entitled to resent uh, or despise people that disagree with us. Because all we see is confirmation of what we already think and demonization of anyone who thinks differently. Which, it's, which seems exactly like the world that I live in. Seems, seems exactly what my, what my experience is. Right? More, more, more viewers, users, engagement, and things get worse and worse. And God is saying more engagement is not always better. Right? If, you, if you take a, a bunch of sinners and put them into a centrifuge and kind of mix them all up and maximize their engagement as much as you possibly can and give them an environment where they can actualize any desire that pops into their, their head, that's not necessarily a good thing. Probably a bad thing. They'll have great potential to accomplish massive things, but because of their sin, their accomplishments will not be for good. They'll be for, for evil. Right? They'll, they'll do amazing... They'll, they'll make the printing press. And it's incredible. And literacy will thrive. And education, people will be reading their Bibles. And it's awesome. And then they'll use the printing press to organize the transatlantic slave trade and start human trafficking. They'll, they'll invent the internet and it'll be awesome and information abounds and it's at your, at your fingertips and then they'll use it for pornography and sexual abuse and more human trafficking. God says the humanity will stop at nothing. There's nothing that they can't create. There's nothing that they can't do, but it's bad because their hearts are bad because they've given themselves over to sin. So God is to intervene. Verse 7. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let's, let's, put, let's put a ceiling on how bad they can be or at least how quickly they can, can get there. Let's keep them from actualizing their, their desire. Right? So when, when a teacher, when people are misbehaving and you like separate the kids in the classroom, my parents every week at church used to sit right in between me and my siblings Three kids, two parents, kid, parent, kid, parent, kid, because we couldn't get along if we were, if we were together. So, like, it, just separate them. Just separate them, and the, they'll do less damage individually than they will do uh, collectively. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Different languages, different cultures, different people groups. They immediately stopped building the Tower of Babel. It's the quickest way, I think, to slow down any project that you don't want to get done is introduce a language barrier into it. You have to spend ten times as much effort trying to communicate what should be easy. You'll accomplish one-tenth of what you otherwise would have. Chances are, unless it's like life or death, you're just going to give up. Forget this. I don't even want to finish this project anyway. And you just quit, walk away, which is exactly what they did. Left the tower, left the city, dispersed, scattered, consolidated into various... Uh, you know, cultures and people groups throughout the world. In verse 9, Therefore, its name was called Babel, 
Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The, the, Hebrew, the word Babel comes from the Hebrew word that means confusion or confounded or mixed up or scattered. Um, and so, I mean, even in English today, like, like the word Babel means to speak unintelligibly, to, to you know, speak in a way that, you know, he, I don't know what he's talking about. He's just babbling. My son Baxter is talking all day long. None of it's intelligible. Just random syllables come out of his mouth. We say he's just babbling all, all day long. And so, so God recognizes what's happening at the Tower of Babel, recognizes the sin that's in their hearts, the sinful aspirations that they have, and their competency to actualize those sinful aspirations. And God comes down and puts a, a governor, essentially, on how fast the sin could, could be actualized, a ceiling on how bad humanity could get and how quickly that they could, could get there. Right, we, look, we look at this text, and at first glance, it's, it's uh, judgment. Right? Humanity is sinning against God. They're rebelling against God. They're living for their glory, their fame. They're not going out and being a blessing. They're staying and being comfortable. They're sinning, and God judges them by mixing up their languages and scattering them. And that is true. Right? Uh, there, there is, uh, God is taking action against human sin, pride, rebellion, and there's judgment, but there's also mercy. When's the, when's the last time in the Bible that God looked down and saw sin expressing itself and kind of coming to the surface and, and was, was moved to, to respond and to, and to act? In Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw what the wickedness of man was and that it was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. So the last time God saw human sin, he responded by killing every, I mean, save for Noah and his family, God's response was to just wipe out every single person on the face of the whole entire planet. Kill them all, no questions asked. When God looks down at the Tower of Babel, he sees something very similar to what he saw when he looked down before the flood, but his reaction is very, is very different. I would argue it's a lot better, right? It's, it's, it's really like, I don't know if you've ever traveled to a language that doesn't speak English. It's really hard, right? It's really hard to find a bathroom. It's really hard to order food. It's really hard to use public transport. Having, having a language barrier is difficult. It's hard. But you know what's, what's way worse is dying in a worldwide flood, right? Drowning to death under a 100-foot tidal wave. And being held underwater until you die is way worse than a language barrier. Because, because the, the Tower of Babel was both judgment for sin, but also mercy, where God came down specifically to keep humanity from being as bad as they otherwise could be. So that God would not have to destroy them with the judgment that he otherwise would have to. There's judgment and mercy. And years later, in the person and work of Christ, God would come down again for those, sa for, for those same two purposes of, of judgment and 
and mercy, right? An act of judgment against sin and mercy for sinners. Jesus would go to the cross. God would, would visit on him all of the, the wrath and fury and judgment and punishment for human sin. Jesus would be crushed in place of sinners, punished as if he had committed all of the sins of all of humanity so that God could extend mercy and unmerited favor to sinners so that we could turn from our sin, look to Christ, trust in him, and, and believe in him. Right, so that we could be reconciled to God, gathered into his church, forgiven of our sins, given new life through the Holy Spirit, kept safe and secure with God for all of, of eternity. In the person of Christ, there is judgment against sin and there's mercy for sinners. Same thing that we saw at Babel is the same thing that we see at Calvary. And, interestingly enough, immediately after Calvary, after Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascends back uh, to the Father, when we look at Acts chapter 2, we start to see God undoing some of the effects of sin that were, you know, as long-standing in human history, all the way back to, to Genesis chapter uh, 11. God, through the church and through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit in the church, starts to undo, right? Genesis 11, everyone's speaking the same language they're leveraging it for evil, wickedness, and sin. God confuses them and scatters them so that they can't understand each other. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, people from all over the world are gathering together, but no one can understand each other because they all speak different languages. And the Holy Spirit comes on them and fills them. And the apostles stand up and begin to share the gospel. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. So it's a sermon. You can read about, they share how God, uh, you know, how Christ died for their sins and was resurrected from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father and how they, as people listening now, should turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And, and supernaturally, miraculously, everyone hears this message in their own language. God grants them the supernatural gift of, of understanding. Babel, God takes people speaking the same language confuses them and scatters them out. And at Pentecost, God takes people speaking different languages and allows them to hear and listen and, and receive the gospel and believe it and be reconciled to God through faith. Right? In, in the gospel, all throughout the Bible, God is systematically undoing all the effects of sin. Until by the end of Revelation, God has refashioned the entire world to be again, what it was originally intended to be, which is this, this garden-like Edenic experience where God dwells with his people and God's people are called to behold his glory and enjoy his glory. And just like God told him in, in Genesis, I want you to fill this garden, fill, fill the earth with my glory, like expand the borders of the garden. It's, in Genesis 22, it's done. That's done and all that's left to do is live with God and enjoy him for forever. And so our calling, kind of between those two bookends, our calling right now is to, is to hear God's word and listen to it. Right? God's calling us to love our neighbor and spread his fame. So don't uh, build a city for yourself. Don't live for your glory and your fame. Live for God's glory and his fame. Live in view of God's uh, terrible judgment against sin, but also God's wonderful mercy for sinners. And in view of it, our calling is to trust in him and hold fast to him, knowing that he is 
our only hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for mercifully intervening in our lives to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves. Lord, we acknowledge that if we're left to our own devices, we will rebel against you, hunker down and live for ourselves and live for our preferences and our desires and our reputation. And Lord, we repent of that. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to change us. We ask you to help us to go and love our neighbor like you've called us to. We ask you to help us to live for your glory and your fame. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.